I was such a mess. Okay, I was so depressed. And I was so filled with self-loathing at this point that I tried to commit suicide. And I mean, I had like a loaded gun in my mouth. It was a shotgun, so I had my toe on the trigger. And I was sitting on the end of my bed trying to figure out whether to live or die. And God saved me. He, yeah, he did. He uh, actually, he used my son who, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this or not, but because uh, he doesn't know. But I was like, God, what am I doing? Do I just, am I just done? Or do I keep living? Welcome to the NoCast, everybody. My name is Banning. I'm Corey. And today we are sitting down with the Gail Cott. She is a published author. She is an adventurer. She held land speed records. Um, we're going to get into all of that. And so please join us in welcoming Gail Cott to the podcast. Gail, good morning. How are you? I am well. How are you this morning? <sighs> I was just telling everybody, I, I actually left my cup of coffee at home. So I feel like I'm beside myself a bit. Corey, how are you? I'm good. I've got my coffee with me, so yeah. I'll, I'll carry all the energy today. If it wasn't for COVID, I would have some of that coffee. But yeah, I, I understand. Yeah. But I understand both positions, but uh, <laughs> I did have two cups, so oh I'm, I'm, I had one for you, Banning. I took one for the team. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're going to jump right in, Gail, um, and I just want to know, tell us where you come from. Where are you from? What was life like growing up? I am originally from Nebraska. I was born in a hospital, but I was raised in a barn. Um, yeah, I lived in a converted barn when I was a kid. When I, we lived on a dairy, my dad was the foreman. And so, yes, I'm well acquainted, acquainted with cows, um, Holsteins in particular. I had a cow to, in 4-H that I showed that I didn't spend enough time with, and it dragged me all around the arena, and I didn't really place well. But, you know, that's okay. Um, yeah, life on the dairy was good. I'm the youngest of six. I have two older brothers and three older sisters. Um, it was lonely because I couldn't really play with my friends because they were in town. I you know, saw them at school, and there wasn't there was like me and my imagination. Is yeah. yeah. I mean, my older sister is wonderful. My sister Connie, she's a pastor now, but um, she's the one I was closest with. But once she hit the teenage years, it ceased to be fun to you know play with her little sister so much so what was the town in nebraska fairberry 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 wow i like how that rhymes that's yeah. fun. sounds like a pie yeah fairberry did you guys have a, a, a like a local pie fairberry no but that pie. would have been a really good idea i should I like know. tell my brother he still lives back there there I you just, go I feel like that's start a company yeah fairberry pies yeah, or they have actually, like a town competition, the Fairberry Pie Off. We talk go. about pies too much on this podcast. I know. It's, well, <laughs> we're talking about everyone. Good. Everyone we've we've done we've met with so far for this season, all comes from usually somewhere else, somewhere like, Midwest, somewhere Midwest. <laughs> so I think we had someone from oh, I can't remember Pennsylvania, yeah, Pennsylvania, and um, then um, I can't remember. I want to say the Dakotas, but I know that's wrong. No, Beth was from Idaho. Idaho which is not Midwest, but still different. It's mountain. It's almost Midwest. Yeah. If you're in California, anything across <laughs> Arizona is Midwest. It's true. <laughs> so tell me about the culture of Fairbury, Nebraska. You, you're on a dairy farm. Yeah. And when I hear that, I think about the, like my dad always talks about, well, we always had, you know, milk with the cream on top. Oh, yeah. And that was always a delicacy. What was that like? What was the culture like? Okay, so as far as the milk thing goes, you had to go to the milk tank, you had to stir the tank, and then you dipped your bucket in and got the cream out for the day, or the milk out for the day. If you didn't stir the tank, and I never had to do this, it was just my brother that he used to get in trouble if he didn't stir the tank enough. Um, all you got was cream, and then you got in major trouble because the cream rises to the top. So, I mean, we sold the milk. It was a big dairy. It was, you know. I think of the smell of poop. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, in all honesty, I am one of the few people in the world who probably actually likes the smell of cow manure. Wow. 
Oh, I bet just because you grew up there and it yeah. been about that time. It yeah, is. Totally. I mean, I used to drive past Chino and I'd like, oh, cows. Smells like and home. And most people are like, but, Roll up know. the windows. <laughs> <laughs> and her heart just, her mind just goes back to sweet Fairberry, Nebraska. There you and go. The, and the cream that rises to the top. Yes, yeah, so I go. love that. Maybe we'll call that, this episode will be called the cream that rises <laughs> to the top. <laughs> the story of Gail. <laughs> so you describe yourself as a child as an insufferable know-it-all. Oh, yes. Tell me all about that. I'm very bright. Okay, um, I love it. <laughs> well, I am. I mean, it's God gave me a brain. Yes. Okay. And I learned very quickly. And when anyone would say something to and another adult, I would like pipe up with the answer because that's, I was just an insufferable know-it-all. <laughs> and I still am in, I've learned to shut my mouth more and open my ears more, but I'm, yeah, I'm still an insufferable know-it-all. Did that come from like a need to prove yourself for oh, something? Oh, absolutely. Or... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the youngest of six, right? I'm the youngest of six. I mean, by the time mom got to me, she was worn out. My parents are, were good parents. Okay, they loved me very much, but dad worked hard because we lived on a farm. And mom was tired because she had my brother, Tom. So he's enough to wear anybody out. After about three, they're probably pretty tired. Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, and a whole, it's the children and the cattle between the two. Yeah, no, Tom was just, uh, is just, he's fun, but he was not an easy child to raise. Okay, Tom used to grab me, <laughs> hold me by my ankles over the toilet and tell me he was going to flush me down. <laughs> Mom, Tom's going to flush me down the toilet. Thomas George, don't you flush your sister down the toilet? So anyway, that was, yeah, How much older is Tom brother. from you? Uh, about 12 years. Mm. Okay. Tom's a bully. Tom's nah. A <laughs> <laughs> He's fun. He can tell stories that just would have you guys rolling. So, so did you get a lot of freedom because you were the sixth child and you were kind of the, the last one in the line? Did you get to do a lot of unsupervised to go out and do whatever you wanted because they were dealing with the other five? I did so. I wasn't really necessarily allowed to. You just did because you wanted to. But I, yeah. It's just kind of my nature. You talk about your childhood and you said in your pre-interview that we're all products of our childhood to some extent, That's which true. I think we all agree with. You also say that this is when the deepest insecurities in your life took root. Oh, yeah. What would some of those insecurities be and do you have any idea where they, where they came from? Okay, we can go a couple of places. I was poor. And so the other kids made fun of me because I was poor and didn't have the, the good clothes, even in Fairbury, Nebraska, okay. You still, <laughs> you still can have the, the better dressed kids from the poor kids. But uh, so that was part of it is because, you know, you get, you're not the cool kid. You're the smart kid, and that puts you in its own category because they hate you then too because you're smarter than they are. But you're not cool and you're smart, so you just kind of get ostracized. So, I mean, I had some friends, but... I was, yeah, I was bullied, for lack of a better word. I mean, I guess that's what we'd call it now. Just at the time, it was just life. Um, also, because mom, I loved my mother, don't mistake me, but because she was worn out, I mean, because we were poor and she's trying to provide and, you know, do what she can with what dad's given her because he's working his backside off for us, I felt like an afterthought because I am six years younger than the other ones. I felt like I wasn't really wanted and that's never what she wanted for me. And I know that, but as a little kid, that's still how I felt. And so you get that going on. One time I asked her if she liked me and always be careful what you say to your children because she said, I, I love you, but I don't like you. And that pierced my little heart. She didn't mean it to, but it did. And so I have tried to be very intentional about what I say to my children and my grandchildren, just speaking life. How old were you? Do you remember when oh, she said that to eight. you? Eight. Wow. And like I said, she didn't mean to hurt me. It just did. And and I'm assuming that kind of closed a, a door, put some a wall in that relationship right there. 
Yes and no. I mean, it's, you know, well, we all do the best we can with what we've got. And uh, so yes and no, but there was, yeah. Well, so, so most of those f- um, focus around your your mom and then your, your relationship with your mom. Did from that did that cause you to to pull away, or did it cause you to to try and reach her more? Well, that's part of the need for approval and the excelling in school is just so that my parents would approve of me. I mean, you know. So um, you could put some focus on yourself and say, hey, look at how good I'm, I'm yeah. doing. And look how smart I am. See how smart I am. Yeah. <laughs> In first grade, this is just letting you know who I was. I still am, unfortunately. Um, I got one wrong on a math test for the first time ever. And I cried because I missed a math problem. I no longer cry when I miss math problems, but, you know, I still don't like to fail. Not that anybody really does. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit later about what you've done in terms of being an author. I'm curious at what point the pen and the paper became a refuge for you. Four. Four years old. That's when I first learned to like write my name and start reading. and Yeah. And did you start engaging in creative writing early on? Seven. Seven. So as you have these experiences where you're living on... I mean, I just, you don't even have to, I don't know what dairy farmer would have (laughs) a a cushy, easy life. I mean, it's an early day. It's a late night. Um, You know, you're living in poverty. You have, your parents are worn out all the time. You have a lot of siblings. Did writing become a place for you to escape and humanize yourself? Uh, I write because God designed me to. Um... I used to write poetry when I was a little kid, and well, I still do, but uh, it's evolved a bit. But as a teenager, writing was definitely an escape and a refuge, most definitely. As a little kid, I didn't really see it that. It was just something that I'm just a creative person, and that was just my way of creating. I was always creating something, sometimes trouble, but uh, (laughs) I was always creating something. Is there anything you created in that phase of your life, childhood slash adolescence, that you can remember specifically? Yeah. Ooh, big smile on her face. Yeah. No. Okay. I would take, and I'm using my hands on a podcast. It doesn't make sense, but that's okay. I would take a bouncy ball, and I would take um, tissue paper and wallpaper paste until we ran out of that, and then I had to just use normal glue, and I made hats. I spent one summer just making all of these different hats and different colored tissue paper, and my mom probably wondered what happened to all of her tissue paper. But now she saw me wearing it. But uh, yeah, the hats were fun. Wow, I was young. Is it a haberdasher? Is that what a hat maker is? <laughs> yes. You're a young haberdasher. <laughs> Look at you go. Well, you taught me something today. Yeah. <laughs> you also talk about your, yourself as being adventurous. And looking at your story, there is a, a big there's a big theme of adventure there. How did that incarnate itself in young Gale? How, how what, what did being adventurous look like for an eight to an eight year old living in Fairbury, Nebraska on a dairy farm? Okay. There was this rock quarry is actually a gravel gravel quarry that I wasn't supposed to go to alone. Um, my brother would go with me sometimes, but, uh, when I got a little bit older, I would just go there on my own, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to. And I'd climb down the side of the cliff and down to the bottom, and then I'd climb back out and go home. But um, yeah, I could have gotten in so much trouble. And then there was the other direction. There was one that had turned into more of a swamp type thing that had quicksand. And I knew. Nothing. Yeah, a matter of circ. I feel like that's, that might be a lifestyle that you enjoy living. I love the country. Yeah. But I'm getting older, and so I don't know what I'm going to do. Less and less being a matter of choice. Central air and heat sounds pretty good at this point. (laughs) Heat sounds pretty sweet. (laughs) Yeah. For the one day in California, it's cold. I mean, I'm sure living out there, too, is it seems like such a rider thing, too, to live out in the the peaceful, out in the woods. Yeah, that's true. I do my best talking to God when I 
go for walks out there. And tranquility and creativity has, has played a big part of your life. It sounds like for your whole life. And even going back to, I love how you talk about, you loved Bugs Bunny. You wanted to be either, what was it? An astronaut or, or an actress or an actress. I mean, you had these, this, this big sense of creativity that I still feel like you have. I mean, I, I get the sense that you still have the same sense of wonder and adventure. And so you grow up, you move, you're still growing. You're in high school. I, I want to make note, too, that you started playing the drums at this point. Oh, I was playing the drums from fifth grade, actually. Do you still play the drums? No. I had to sell my drum set once to pay the rent, which made me sad, but kept a roof over our heads for another month. So Yes. So now, I mean, you also have a, a love for hiking. You love the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. So this is all growing in you in addition to the wounds that you're carrying and and the insecurities you have and now you're i'd like to talk about when you're when you're a young adult okay you're 18 which i feel like being 18 being 18 now it's it's more of what's called emerging adulthood is like a there's like a 10-year window between 18 and 29 where you're becoming an adult but was it more when you're 18 you're an adult i thought so i didn't really necessarily act like one but I went to college in Hawaii for a semester because I was I was going to be a lawyer. That was my career focus when I was a teenager was international business law because I love languages and that just seemed what I wanted to do. So I went to college, like I said, in Hawaii and I was looking for someone to love me in all the wrong ways. <laughs> So I, uh, yeah, it's not like I didn't know God, but I kind of veered off the path, like jumped really as far as I could with both feet for a while. Why did you choose Hawaii? That seems like, yeah, it seems like a random choice because a girl from Nebraska. Exactly. Just, I want to go, I want to go someplace tropical and warm. Cause I could pick whatever college I wanted. I had good enough grades. And, and so instead so of going to Harvard Law or... I or wanted to go to Hawaii. I mean, wouldn't you want to go to school in Hawaii? I Palm trees and Mai Tais. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up, you know? Yeah, and drinking age was 18 there. Yeah. So that was also not really the best thing ever, but, you know. You, taught, you mentioned your faith. I should have... I mean, you've mentioned it a few times now so far. Yeah. And... Although this podcast is produced at a church, you know, we're, we're, we want to hear what you want to say. Well, so was faith an important part of your life any, at a young age? Oh, yeah. I was raised in the church. Um, I still have the Bible that I got in after fourth grade Sunday school. They gave me a, a Bible, and I, it's kind of falling apart now, but I do still have that Bible. Um, yeah, God's been with me through all of it, even when I wasn't following him. You're in Hawaii. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. Did you find it? No, not there. I had a couple of guys that uh, wished I had, but they weren't the ones that I was interested in. You know how that goes. But yeah, so no, not there. When did you find it? I thought I found it with my first husband. Um... If I'm honest, I wanted to love him. I don't know how deeply I truly did love him, which I did him a disservice in that. But I, I did. I wanted to love him. How I, old were you? Oh, golly. We got married when I was 19. So is this, were you still in Hawaii or had you come no, back? No, I'd by come then? back to Nebraska wanting to love somebody but not being able to or how would you describe that we just weren't a good couple I mean we we both tried and I know he loved me I know he truly did but we weren't as compatible as 
married people should be. Hmm. And so there was a lot of tension and a lot of problems, and it ended after four years. I was such a mess. Okay, I was so depressed, and I was so filled with self-loathing at this point that I tried to commit suicide. And I mean, I had like a loaded gun in my mouth. It was a shotgun, so I had my toe on the trigger. And I was sitting on the end of my bed trying to figure out whether to live or die. And God saved me. He, yeah, he did. He, uh, actually, he used my son, who, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this or not, but, because uh, he doesn't know. But I was like, God, what am I doing? Do I just, am I just done? Or do I keep living? And my little boy right then knocked on the door. He was, what, three? I said, Mommy, I need you. So I said, Gail, what the hell are you doing? Unloaded the gun, put it away, opened the door, played with my kid. I mean, you know, and then that was when I knew I had to leave my first husband. And so I took my kid and left. And we tried to work it out a little bit, but it just wasn't going to be a thing, so. So this was while you were still married. Yeah, this was the end of my first marriage. And this must, must have been the lowest point, and to have such a, like a, a clean you're you're literally making a decision to continue your life or to end it yeah and your son in the most pure manner comes and knocks on your door mommy i need you yep (laughs) yeah that's that's, just there's just like such shock on all of our faces and but like just of how an amazing of a of a a moment that is you know how how truly life-defining that is i was i mean i'm here sitting talking to you yeah yeah we're all thankful for that me too yeah (laughs) (laughs) i i I don't and you let me know if i'm crossing a, a boundary here but to be in that moment in that place and there are probably people who are going to be listening to your story and and hearing that Mm -hmm. and Unfortunately, they're going to they're going to listen and say, I know how that feels or maybe even I feel that right now. For you, what did it take to get you to that point? And we'll talk about how you kind of came out of that. But you don't have to go into too much detail if you don't want to. But did coming back from college early, did that impact it? Was it mostly the marriage where they're did the insecurities of your childhood, did they kind of work their way into that as well? I'm sure there, I'm sure it was a combination, but it was mostly the marriage. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's always layers to everything, but the marriage was bad at that point. And I just didn't know that I really, I thought the world would be better off without me. Wow. I thought my son would be better off without me. Wow. I was wrong. But that's the way I felt in that moment. So when people feel that, I understand because I have been there. But I also know that there's always hope. There's always redemption. And not to give up. Even though it might suck at the moment, it doesn't have to in the next few days, you know. That's a, that is a mountain of work. I mean, to go, to be in that position in your bedroom where you're thinking, is the world better off without me? To, to make the decision to stay, there is a mountain of work. I, I, did you feel that at that moment, realizing I have to get out of this marriage? I have to get myself in a healthier place? Not even, I mean, I imagine also the just the physical ramifications of now I have to find myself a place to live. Now I have to find a way to support me and my son what were some of the the challenges that you had to face as you moved out of that place? Well, I was working, so I had that going, but what were I you actually, doing? I was, let's see, was I assistant managing the pizza place or just supervising or something? I was working at a pizza place. I love pizza. I just want to side, just a side note. I love pizza. Yeah. I still like pizza yeah. even after having worked in, you know, pizza places a couple times, but, um, in Nebraska still. Y- no, 
By now I'm in California, sorry. Okay. How'd you get to California? Okay. My first husband is restless. Or, yeah, he's still... Actually, I think he's been where he's been for a couple of years now. But so in the four years we were married, we moved 11 times. And Wow. That's that, a lot. That takes its toll on you. But anyway, I don't know if anybody else listening or you guys have tried to live in a tent in Oregon in April with a baby and a dog, but I do not recommend it. Okay. Just <laughs> little two-year-olds like to touch the wall to see the water drops come in. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it was, it was an adventure, but I don't recommend it. Um, anyway, he, we decided we wanted to move to California. So actually, no, we wanted to move to Oregon first. He couldn't find work up there. So we started working our way from Oregon down the coast because I had a sister in um, La Habra. Hmm. And I said, well, if you don't find anything, we can land there for a few days until we figure it out. And so that's actually what, where we ended up. And then he did find a job. And then we moved to Colton, which is by San Bernardino. Um, yeah. And uh, lived there. And that's where I went to pieces. Yeah. And so as that marriage ended, were, did you have anyone else there that you could rely on or were you were you there I had on an a friend by yourself? that uh, was very helpful to me actually she was yeah she took me in for a little bit until I could get my own apartment how, how much of your your family knew about how tough your marriage was none of them none of them are you nuts I'm not gonna tell them yeah <laughs> I was ashamed I mean I'm not gonna broad I'm doing it now because I don't have shame anymore but um, yeah, I was ashamed. I've, it was like another failure with a capital F to me. And I was a mess, and I didn't want them to worry about me. So, I'll, you know. Yeah, so reaching out to your sister who was, um, you know. I, yeah, I didn't really. I mean, I know she would have been there for me. And she knew some of what was going on, but not all of it. Um, and I didn't want them bagging on my first husband either because... He had enough problems. He didn't need other people bagging on him for our marriage. I don't know if it was an insecurity or just a character trait of being the insufferable know-it-all. You know, knowing, being the <laughs> Gail who had to prove herself. She, you know, she got good grades, X, Y, and Z. Um, I feel like that'd be pretty tough to, to phone up mom and say, hey, my marriage is over. In addition to, I went away to school in Hawaii and came back early yeah. Or are you moving 11 times in four years? At what point did you tell them? Well, I did tell them, you know, shortly after I had moved out. And they knew a little bit of what was going on, not all of it. And, uh, yeah. So it, w it wasn't really hard to tell them. That's good. It's just, my like I said, my parents were actually really good people. And they were in a better place by then, too, as far as their lives. So, yeah, it wasn't, it was, yeah. A divorce is sad because it's its own form of grief. Sure. Because it's the death of a marriage. And so that had its own grief to it. But, yeah, it wasn't hard to tell them about it. Picking up the pieces at that point, what were some of the important things you remember looking back? As I know for me, I go back to sort of my first really short-lived marriage, and, and I think there were these, like I remember taking out the trash and mm -hmm. thinking, this is a big deal. The first time I've taken out the trash is since this trauma happened. Yeah. Were there little moments in your life where you, where you look back and think, those were important steps I took to being free of this? Kind of a one step in front of the other thing. I mean, I had, I kept working, had to support my kid. Um, met a guy who wanted to be my knight in shining armor, and I was feeling like a distressed damsel, so seemed like a good idea and it's maybe a great movie plot but in real life it's a bad choice to let anybody try to rescue you hmm. it's just a bad choice i mean i love men being men i love men being strong and protectors and providers but you got to go into a relationship appreciating them for who they are but not wanting them to save you um so yeah that actually leads into 
the next really hard part of my story. So I met this guy, good guy. We became friends and then we became more than friends and I got pregnant. I wanted to keep the baby, he didn't. And so we didn't. And I knew it was wrong. I was raised in a Christian home, but I did it anyway, because I let him talk me into it. And having an abortion wrecked me in ways that I can't even begin to explain to someone who's never been there. Um, yeah, it did. And so that becomes the biggest, deepest, darkest secret that you ever have. And you stuff that way down deep inside. And you don't tell anybody because of the shame and the guilt. And then there's the lack of forgiveness for yourself. I mean, you might kind of believe God will forgive you, kind of, but you think you can never forgive yourself. But you deal with it because you did it, you suck it up, you move on. And so a couple weeks after uh, that happened, he decided that uh, he needed to go back to his ex-wife. So he dumped me and he went back to his ex-wife and I hope that he gets healing someday if he hasn't already because I know it had to hurt him too. Um, but yeah, so then we, you know, like I said, you suck it up, you deal with it and you move on. And uh, that's what I did. So I, I want to talk a little bit still about the first marriage and then that relationship falling. Mm -hmm. It sounded like you still hadn't had a chance to fully grieve or process or, or find closure from your first marriage because you said you, you hopped like right into just working and getting on in life and just moving sure. on and, and not really processing it. Did you, and then you jumped into this second relationship, which then doesn't sound like you right. process that either. sounds like it's your, your first response is to, is to just keep pushing, keep moving. Have you ever gotten to that point in your life realizing I need to have closure on these things or, or did it, did it just kind of gradually happen and you, you, you just accepted that there's closure in it? The relationships, that was a, a gradual thing. Um, the loss of my second husband when we get there was like a shutdown, two-month process grief thing. But dealing with the process uh, in the aftermath of having an abortion, mm -hmm. was it just a you had to bury it and move on? Because yeah. you kind of alluded to that this wasn't something that you could talk to anyone about. No. This wasn't calling mom and dad saying, hey, I'm... Golly, no. You know, I'm, I, my marriage is over. This is something... It sounds like to you that was it was bigger. See, they knew I was pregnant because I had told them that. I, I lied. I told them everybody that I miscarried. The one sister out here, did I tell her? I don't remember if I told her or not. My friend that I was staying with knew. But no, I, it was not until I got healing that I was able to tell any of my family. Where we're at in your, your story arc, you've now met your second husband, or who would become your second husband. Let's talk about that relationship. He was uh, definitely an adventurous man. Um, he could do more with less than anybody I have ever known. And we did. I mean, it was, racing was more important to him than working. He was a good guy, but a terrible businessman. Not, not really God's gift to providing, but you know, that's okay. But he, racing, he was uh, on it. What kind of... Well, we did a lot of land speed racing and uh, did some road racing down in Mexico and... Like supercars or... No. Um, okay. Vintage Harleys in Elmer at El Mirage Dry Lake and Bonneville Salt Flats. And then in Mexico, we've got a... Or it's now my son's. I gave it to him. But a uh, 54 Lincoln that he used to road race down there. And then I have a 49 Ford that uh, coupe that I used to road race down there and that I used to run at El Mirage. How fast are we talking? Um, fastest he ever went, that while he was with me anyway, was probably 165 on the bike. <laughs> um, fastest I've ever been is only 139. 
That's fast. That's <laughs> so fast. <laughs> Still fast. And you're talking, so in, a, in which car, a 49 coupe? Well, actually, no. In the 49, I've only been like 110. Even then, that's a big block of steel. Oh, yeah. Going it's, really it's, fast. It's, it's, uh, you're pushing a brick through the wind. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's a but, great description of <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, no, I was actually in a, a friend's car at Bonneville. He let me drive his, uh, what was that? I can see it in my head, but I can't tell you what it is. But yeah, it was like a 38 Chevy Coupe or something like that. Maybe it's 38 Ford Coupe. But anyway, that he had all built up and pure so, hot rod. Yeah. 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 So. And you set a land speed record at one point. Yeah, sort of. Um, I have one in the books. I'll put it that way. But it wasn't entirely my record. My late husband had to. Okay, we were at Bonneville. Okay. I was on this 55 Triumph that the clutch, I mean, I, I want to get a gun right now and shoot the thing, but I won't. Um, anyway, yes, it's a, it's a motorcycle, but, uh, I just was having so many clutch issues the whole stinking week that he had to finish for me and actually get the record. Cause I could, to set a record to Bonneville, you have to make a down run and then a return run. And I could make it one way, but the second run that I had to make, something happened every time. Every time. I mean, once I was going so well, it was beautiful. And then the throttle cable came unscrewed from the slide, and I had to push the thing off the salt in my leather, or off to the return road in my leathers, and it was just not fun. Because with every rotation of the tire, more salt is building up on it, and you're getting more and more drag, and it's you're, you're getting angrier and angry. Oh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, that's a that's a good a good description there. That it, so it's a land speed record, but it's not like a land speed record that I think the average person thinks it's just someone driving as fast as they can in a straight line. It's a it's a it's a it's a measured course. Me, yeah. Course. Thing. So yeah. how long how long is it? Each way? Three miles for short course, which is what I would run. Three miles one way? Well, sure. So you're going a hundred and something miles an hour on a motorcycle for three miles one way? Yeah, that's the plan. Wow. <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> that, that's how she had it in her head. That's the plan. So what was it? What was your speed? Uh, mine was like 98 on that. And why, it, it, you said it kind of was a record, so you shared it oh, with Oh, it is a record. It's just my, it's Fritz actually said it it's in my name but he's the one who actually set the record because apparently i wasn't doing well enough so and where is the record and what is the specific category uh let's see that would be 650 vintage blown gas um that's uh, uh southern california timing association bonneville nationals record gail cott yeah actually it was full house spouse See, full the, house spouse. The bike that we ran, the Harley, the K model, is full house mouse. So we were full house mouse racing. And so when I started racing myself, then it became, I was full house spouse. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. <laughs> That's, that just sounds like such a good time. It was. You know, going, I mean, I've been out to Glamis and done that whole thing, but being at the salt flats with your buddies just ripping. Yeah, it is a good ripping time. Ripping fuel across the old salt flats i don't know i still love the smell of nitro in the morning <laughs> wow i do <laughs> i've never smelled I'm it i'm trying to, i'm trying to imagine how salt and nitro and fuel smells yeah i know i know how fuel and nitro smells but yeah. like mixed with the smell of salt flats uh it's 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 unique all the smells that people are often like oh this smells like fuel or oh, oh this smells smell. like manure you have gail over here it's like oh, smells like home I know, right? Smells Nitro like... and cow poop. I, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Maybe Yeesh. we'll call that. Maybe that'll be the podcast title. Nitro and cow poop. Yeesh. Yeesh. <laughs> the difference between the first relationship out of your, your marriage, where you had a, a guy that was a knight in shining armor, how was your second husband different from that? He was a unique individual. He was a person who knew his mind. And if anybody else didn't agree with it, that was too bad um, because he 
just really believed he was right. And a lot of the time he was. Not all the time, but a lot of the time he was. So he, uh, but yeah, he was never boring. He wasn't easy, but he was never boring. So like he, he didn't come in with the mindset of trying to, to rescue or to fix you. Um, well, I don't know. He probably did, but it wasn't as overt. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it was a better relationship. It had its problems. Definitely had its problems. We were together for 26 or seven years, something like that. Wow. Was there coming into that second relationship? Did you have a lot of anger from the person you dated that made you go through with an abortion and left you more sadness than anger? Yeah. That's kind of in general, more how I deal with things is more of a sadness than anger. I'm not a particularly angry person. I mean, I can get angry, but I'm not a particularly angry person. An adventurous can fix everything marriage. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was fun. I mean, it, yeah, there were definite moments where I was like, ah, but it was a lot of fun. And you had children. I mean, you have, we know you had your son in your first marriage, and then yeah. did you have more? Yeah. He had a son from his one of his previous marriages, so who's the same age as my oldest boy. Sure. And then together we had um, two more. Two more. Yeah. Wow. So now we're going to get to the point where we're going to talk about something that's significant was a significant part in your life. And one of the harder things you've had to experience was when you lost your second husband. You know, it was odd because I had no idea that I could grieve that deeply. I mean, we had had challenges throughout our marriage. I mean, we had, you know, marriage isn't easy, but this was a particularly not easy one. I just wasn't giving up. Uh, and neither was he, but, uh, yeah, so it was, but after he died, okay, got to realize the context of his death. Um, he was helping my youngest son work on a race car for the antique nationals. And he came up on the porch, called my name and collapsed. And I went out there, thought maybe he just tripped on something because it was my porch at the time. Um, but realized he had a real problem going on, called my youngest, who came and started CPR. I called 911. They came, but he just, he died from a massive heart attack. Um, and so it was very unexpected, obviously, from working on a race car to, yeah, going to a morgue. Um, and it was like, you go into a numbness for a little bit and you go through the motions and since I've always had to be the strong one because I've always had to be the strong one um, I had to continue that for my kids I mean who were all grown other than the youngest was still living at home he was 18 but you have to be the strong one and that's just my role in life is to be the strong one and it was hard to allow myself not to be strong because I needed to grieve I needed to process. I needed to shut down for a little bit. I, I don't. I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to overspeak about just. But in hearing your story, I see a lot of. I mean, a lot of big stuff. You know, a lot of big moments of trauma. A lot of big moments, and, and we're learning that so many people have. We don't see this in the grocery store. We don't see this when we're sitting next to each other at church or in the drive-through. You know what I mean? Like, but when you sit down and talk to people, you you learn that we carry heavy things. We yeah. go through these deep traumatic experiences yeah. and in your life going from a very tough first marriage, even going back to being raised in Nebraska on a dairy farm with not a lot of money to a, a first marriage that was real tough to a second knight in shining armor that was really kind of a jerk that eh. pushed you in the direction of making a decision that, where you had so much pain that you had to just push it down and move on. I mean, there's, there's all these moments. I mean, sitting on the end of your bed with a shotgun and now losing your husband of 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. 
is there ever was there ever a time when you sat down or was it a pro where you just kind of, it just kind of said you know what i have to get all this i have to address all of this that's a lot of weight to carry and i'm just curious how you processed it because your view on life is so healthy and you seem so healthy how did you get to that point in spite of all of these circumstances god yeah short answer uh, before i received healing from my abortion I was very good at wearing a mask. I was very good at looking like I had my act together. And because, again, I'm the strong one. And I knew God was with me. But after my husband passed, on one of my walks with God, he said, okay, now we need to deal with your abortion. Because I never told my second husband. He had lost a child in a flood. And he would not have either understood or forgiven me for what I did. So I never told him, couldn't tell him, no way in the world I could tell him. Um, but God said, okay, we need to deal with this. And I said, no, I've stuffed this for 28 years. I don't need to deal with it. And he said, no. And I said, no, God, I argued with him for a few weeks. And then there was a post-abortion study at this church, actually. And so you have no idea how hard it was to actually drag my feet from my car to the door of the prayer cottage. Um, but uh, I did. And so I went through, uh, it was, I think, a six or eight week study and said, thank you, God, I'm all better now. That's, I, that's, that's great. Let's do something else. Let me go play with my orphans in Malawi again. And uh, he said, <laughs> no. So then they asked me to help lead the study. So I'm like, oh, really, Lord? So I did. And then I heard about Deeper Still. And they told me if I wanted to serve on the, on the team that I had to go to a retreat. And I said, look, I'm a widow. Don't have a ton of money. If God wants me to go, he'll make a way. They bought me a plane ticket. Um, God wanted me to go. They made a way. And I received so much healing. I went to Tennessee. And I received so much healing. And that's actually a lot of the stuff that I can talk about now that I couldn't have talked about before is because I went there. And because I learned that if I don't forgive myself, I am elevating myself above what the finished work of the cross. Because what Jesus did is good enough for all of it. No matter how deep, dark, and depraved you've been, the finished work of the cross is enough. And I'm not better than Jesus, so I have to forgive me because he forgives me. I think that there is, I mean, I have, I have faith. Sure. And Corey and Mason have faith too. Like we, sure. But I think that there would be a lot of folks out there that would hear your story and maybe they can relate to it on some level, but they're probably thinking Christianity is not for me. Um, you know, I, I deal, it could be one of a number of things. I, it could be the fact that I've, because sometimes the church comes across in certain ways. Sure. Generally, you know, the yeah, general yeah. church of, and I think there are a lot of pockets of, there's small faith communities that are doing things around and they're doing great things. But for the most part, kind of the churches we see on the news and what they're doing and how they feel about things. I, I can't see them approving almost any of the things that you have that have been a part of your story or my story or a lot of people's stories we sat down with. So how, how does, I think I, I, for me, it's like, how, how have you carried a faith through that? How have you navigated those voices? People that would say, Oh, you've had an abortion. Well, you're not qualified. Oh, your marriage failed. Well, you're not qualified. Oh, you had a child out of wedlock. Well, you're not qualified. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, how have you, how have you pushed through that? And how have you kept this really deep personal faith? That is very, that's obviously very strong. I don't, I don't know how I can really explain that, but I do have a very deep faith. I just, I believe in Jesus and my kids think I'm a, you know, Looney Tune religious person. They love me, but, but I'm not a fan of religion. I'm not, religion gets in the way. I am a huge fan of Jesus because he doesn't get in the way. He is the way. What does that mean? That means without him, I'd be screwed. 
Um, without him, I'd be dead. Without him, if I wasn't dead, I would be a mess. Wow. After your second husband's death, mm -hmm. did you ever find love again or date again? Not yet. Not yet. I love that. I love that attitude. And how long ago was that? That was nine and a half years ago. Nine and a half years ago. Wow. So you think about Gail at, you know, five-year-old Gail just writing her first words to all the life, all of the adventure and pain. And now here you are today. You have obviously gone through a lot, but how would you, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned looking back? Don't be so hard on yourself. I love that. That's something I'm still learning. Do you give yourself a hard time? Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah, don't be so hard on yourself. Um, yeah. Laugh. Laughing is good. You have a great laugh. Thank you. You do have a great <laughs> laugh. Yeah. Laughing is good. Laugh more. Just live your life. Just, love people love god and live your life don't dwell on all the the junk because it comes and it goes some of it lingers longer than uh, we would like it to but don't dwell on it just love god love people that's kind of the short version mm. Mm. now that's the title for the podcast yeah i think that might be it right there it's also a danny Goki song <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote a book yeah Tell, uh, tell us about it. Diary of a racer's wife. Diarrhea? Diary. Diary. We spent a lot of time in Mexico, but that wasn't really the thing. Um, diary. Pause. Of, of a, racer's, a wife. racer's wife. Yeah. Wow. Where can, where can people get a hold of it? Amazon. Amazon. So Diary of a Racer's Wife mm -hmm. by Gail Cott. K-O-T-T. Correct. And is that book kind of about your journey? It's no, it's about my marriage. It's about uh, all the really bizarre things that we did um, that sane people don't do. But you know, <laughs> we we did it anyway. Um, it's it's a fun read. It's it's a more secular book, but it's a fun read if you're if you like racing. If you don't like racing. You might not really, I don't know. I don't, although when uh, one of my friends read it, who knew me in the church context, she's like, that's our Gail? <laughs> <laughs> that's good though. That's yes. the point of what we're doing. It's exactly what we're trying yeah. to do here. Yeah. Your life has been so full of, seems like tragedy after tragedy. But like it, you're, you, you looking at Gail now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see that Gail is, Gail has such a, a, a bright, gentle personality. And I, I don't know that you would see Gail and think she, she's had all this tragedy in her life. And it's, I am grateful for them. I know that may sound odd, but they have taught me compassion. Every scar that I carry has taught me compassion. And that's what we all need is compassion. That doesn't sound crazy to me. No. I actually, I think, I think that's a sign of, of trauma experienced and processed in a healthy way. If you can process the trauma in a way that's healthy and it, it sounds like for you with some things, it took a lifetime. Yeah, sure. And some people don't ever do that. They don't ever make that step to actually address the things that they're pushing down. But when you do that, there's so many bits and pieces of wisdom that can be made known to you and and imparted upon you to where you get to the point that you look back and say i'm actually really thankful that happened as awful as it was and as tragic as it yeah. was there are a lot of things where it's like i would change it you know maybe we would change this decision or that decision but because we can't we look back and say yeah I've, i'm learning everything i possibly can from this and that's why i, I feel like your story gail there's all of these moments where there's these awe moments, you know, like, oh my gosh, poor Gail, poor Gail, poor Gail. But you don't feel sorry for yourself. You don't feel, you don't come across having pity on yourself at all. Especially when you're younger, you're like, these things would destroy me. But you are a living example of someone who can't be destroyed. 
not by herself, not by someone else. And as much as I don't like getting over overly religious in this podcast, yeah, sure. Your faith doesn't come across. It's not a wall. It's not a I'm hiding behind my beliefs because I don't want to talk about myself. Instead, it has been the way that you've processed yeah. and and your faith has been the thing that has helped you from very early on get through all of the different things that you've faced. And if there's one thing I've learned in doing this podcast this season, it's everyone faces something. Mm -hmm. We all face something and we're all going to face multiple things. And it's that character and who you are and the things you have faith in that propel you to navigate them and hopefully be able to look back and say, I'm glad that happened. And I know, you know, for me and I'm sure for Corey and Mason Gale, we're really happy to have been able to spend time with you today. And I just feel like we could do a whole season on her story there's so much. <laughs> there's there's, there's so genuinely much. deep and and true faith that you have. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's just such a, a great example of how faith in in, in your life has been a, an actual driving force and not a veil to hide behind. Yeah, it's 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 awesome, Gail. You are awesome. I hope oh. you know that. Oh, well, thank you guys. And it I hope has it's been a pleasure. I hope it's I hope it's been okay. I know that this can be really intimidating and. Um, I know we, and I'm sure all the people that are listening right now really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, last thoughts, final, final thoughts on if someone out there is, well, we told them where to get a hold of your book so they can yeah, read more yeah. about your life. And if anybody out there is looking to process or, or dealing with the weight of an abortion, where would you send them? I would send them to deeper still. Is there a website? Uh, there is It's deeper still Fallbrook. Um, dot org i think or dot org but anyway yeah deeper still fall fallbrook but yeah and there's no judgment there's just love and that's just who we are and what we do is we just love people and help them to process and deal with because abortion isn't just about the one thing there's all the other stuff too that all contributed to it so yeah but uh and that's deeperstillfallbrook.org. Yes. Well, maybe it's .com. But just go to deeperstillfallbrook. I mean, I'm only on the board of the directors, and I can't remember the name of the thing. But <laughs> well, anyway, Miriam, just, we met with Miriam, too, and yeah. she, she also is involved, and she shared a little bit. But I don't think we um, remembered to figure out how to find that, like with the yeah. website. So I want to yeah, make sure we, we did that here. Look at deeperstillfallbrook. Awesome. You'll find us. Awesome. Well, thank you, Gail, so much. We loved having you, and we hope to have you back again soon. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. I just have to say, uh, yeah, even after Gail got up and left, I, I just think we were all sitting here thinking, like, how how do you summarize a person's whole life in an hour? It's it's so tough. And I mean, especially with Gail's story, um, everybody's story is, is amazing and impactful. But there's moments in, in Gail's story that she's so resolved that are new and shocking to us that we get the response and we're like, we're just sitting here with our mouths open, like not knowing how to respond because it's something that she's just said so casually that oh, she's already dealt with in her life. And I think it, just the fact of how emotionally resolved I think she, she is, is. I think we've, we've seen the experience this season with some people we sit down with. They've, they've not thought about some of these things or they have, but they haven't thought about it. Gail has thought about it. She is, everything is in depth. She's processed it. She, it's the writer in her for sure. Yeah. It's, it's the author in her and she, she's put her narrative together well. And so we just, in the questions, and I, you probably could hear it along the way where we would ask a question and she would give this great answer. And we're kind of like, wow, I didn't expect, not that I didn't expect a great answer from her, but I just, she was so well-spoken in the way that she understood her trauma and her story. Um, and there's a lot of inroads to connecting with her. I mean, there are a lot of people out there, I think, that will hear and feel some sort of connection to Gail. And, and that makes me happy because that's why we do this. Yeah, and, and it's this is a prime example of getting someone's whole life story in an hour is extremely difficult. And it's there. I hope, really, like you just said, I hope there's a lot of people out there that can hear this story and relate to it, and understand, and because that they know Gail better and then they can know themselves better, and hopefully they find some some peace from it and some some healing. 
100%. And also, don't forget, folks, the power of narrative. Spending time. I know we do this on a podcast, but you can do this, too, with anybody. Sit down with people. Get to know them. That's the, the heart of why we do this. We want to know people that we see all the time. And maybe we, we don't think to ourselves, I should spend time with them. But when you do, you discover a treasure trove of amazing, amazing life values and goals and, and achievements. So um, we thank you for joining us. If you'd like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon um, in whatever form that you've listened to this podcast or whatever whatever place you've, you've found us at. If you want to leave us a review, we would appreciate that greatly. This has been a, a great, great session spending time with Gail. And, and you can also check out some of our other podcasts from the season. And again, I am banning with Corey, and we hope you have a great day. Now you know. See you next time. See ya. The NoCast is produced by Mason Minari with executive producers Corey Bidding and Benny Cantorini at SCF Studios in Fallbrook, California. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the NoCast, please like, subscribe, and share this episode. Or simply take the time to listen to someone tell their own story. If you'd like to contact us, have any questions, or would like some resources from our episode, please contact us at thenocast at gmail.com. Again, that is thenocast at gmail.com.